Welcome to 1991 Movie Rewind, a podcast where we watch and review every movie released in 1991, from the all-time greatest classics to the critically panned and everything in between. We will rediscover forgotten fan favorites and uncover hidden gems as we explore the depths of direct video. Join us in our celebration of the fun, unique, and diverse films of this highly underrated year. This week, we watched Where Sleeping Dogs Lie. Sleeping Dogs Lie, Bruce Simmons, played by Dylan McDermott, is a writer and part-time real estate agent who is failing at both jobs. After being evicted from his place, he starts living in an empty mansion that was the site of a famous murder and that inspires his next novel. To keep working, instead of selling the house, he rents out one of the rooms to a roaming stranger. Screenplay by Yolande Turner and Charles Finch, directed by Charles Finch, and premiered at the Santa Barbara Film Festival on November 13, 1991. Now, I know you've seen this movie before. Yes. Is this another many times? Because it was on TV a bunch? No, I watched this movie once, and it creeped me out. Okay. I was, uh, I was probably like 13. Because this movie, yeah, aside from the film festival in 91, I don't think it showed anywhere until, like, I think a direct-to-video release in 93? Yeah. I could not find any box office info at all, so... Well, I couldn't even find anything about the 1991 Santa Barbara Film Festival. When I was looking up Santa Barbara Film Festival, the earliest date I could find anything was 2005. Yeah, they don't keep archival records, or maybe they hide them behind a paywall that we don't know how to access or something, but from what I can tell, like, the the film festival has been going on for Yeah, it's been going on since 1986, which I found that out, but I was like, why can't I find anything about 1991, but whatever, because I wanted to know what other movies were playing. But yeah, basically every other resource that we found that mentions a release date says that this is where it premiered. So they call it a 1991 movie, but it didn't hit the most of U.S. markets until 1993. Uh, I mean, how how was it on a second watch? Was it as creepy as you remember at all? Well, because I knew the twist, Okay. I was just kind of waiting for it. To be honest, I knew the twist as soon as he showed up at the door, though. <laughs> right, but imagine being, like, a 13-year-old watching yeah. this. Like, because when I, I was watching it, ag- it, this is the second time, watching it again, and then also, this is, like, the time where all these psychological thrillers, like, it, like a lot of, they were just, tr- it's kind of like how the Hong Kong golden age of hong kong was where like the from like 1990 to 1995 there was so many random psychological thrillers coming out and a lot of them were like this where it was direct to video or just very lesser known yeah but with big actors yeah with big actors because so it's not like a sweet poison like we've talked about a couple right. times here but um 
so I got this movie confused with like another movie, which we also California. Yeah, which is definitely not 1991. Yeah, but because it has similar storylines. Because mm-hmm. I thought I thought Sharon Stone lived in the house with Dylan McDermott as well as Tom Sizemore. I thought she was in it more. She should have been in it more. <laughs> yeah. This is basically a two-man movie. Uh, there is a little bit of extra cast here, but, I mean, you have Serena Black, played by Sharon Stone, who is sort like of like his, a literary agent slash uh, his, studio executive. I don't know if she works for a, a movie for like studio. a day. Yeah, but also, like, ex-girlfriend, and she kind of is interested in him physically when he's successful and doesn't yeah. care if he's not. But she has, like, three scenes total. Right. And they're very brief. And I think maybe around this time, in 1993 especially, they were probably like, let's put her, because her face is on the cover, and she's barely in this movie. They don't even have Tom Sizemore in it. Yeah. On the cover, at least. But yeah, they're trying to, they to think, play up the erotic thriller side of things by having Sharon Stone. But it's not even it. at all. No, so. there's like a, um, like a makeout scene. Not even that really. She comes out of the pool and is like clinging to him, and he kind of pushes her away because he's right. obsessed with the content of his book. And then that's it. Yeah. That's that's the sexual content, and this is you know she slinks up his body, and then yeah, there's... the end. <laughs> that's fine. I don't so, need it. But, but I mean, yeah, just, it, it, if you're looking at the cover, you know, you, you think you it's be gonna be well because you see Sharon Stone different. on it, and then, I mean, this is around the time where she's doing like Basic Instinct and stuff. Like this is, yeah. so people are probably like, oh, Sharon Stone's in it. I'm gonna see something sexy, maybe. I don't know. Right. Yeah, I mean, that would have appealed to a lot of people trying to rent a movie. That that combo. I guess not really Dylan McDermott at this point, but I mean, it, at least. You know, seeing a, a superstar, gr- growing superstar in, in some unknown movie just randomly on the shelves. Um, I, I will say, like, I'm still creeped out by Tom Sizemore's performance in this movie. They're both creepy in their own ways. But yeah, Tom, Tom Sizemore, like, really amps it up. Um... I think there, there's, like, no subtlety in his performance, like, at all, once you understand what's going on. At, at the beginning, like, you know, he plays off, like, this potential somewhat quasi-religious angle of the whole thing. He, th- th- like, some of the glances and, and attitudes and gestures that he makes made me think there might be some, like, homosexual undertones in the whole thing, too. But no. yeah, that one scene. Where I think the religious was all fake. That one scene where he's he locked himself in the room and he's lighting candles around his bed and then he's strapping himself up, right? And listening to the people that he's murdering on yeah. his headphones, and kind of like orgasming from it. I mean. I, I thought there would have been more 
But that scene was just like five minutes and then that was it. I don't know. Like, okay. Mm -hmm. I thought Dylan McDermott was going to catch him in the air. But I remember... Well, I mean, he didn't have to. I know. (laughs) This this movie has problems for me. I don't know. Like, I know you're talking about how it affected you when you were younger. I mean, when I was younger. I mean, watching it now, I was kind of laughing because, I mean, Dylan McDermott, I only know him from like three things. Sure. And his performance in this reminds me of American Horror Story, where... I didn't see that season. It's the first season, and I kind of want you to watch it. Had, I don't know, because he he's similar. <laughs> he, it's just, like, the similar, like, him, like, just all of a sudden going nuts and screaming around the house. I didn't like his performance. But I I didn't like it, but it was making me laugh because it made me thought, it made me think of American Horror Story. He's he's trying too hard to be somebody who is having a mental breakdown in the beginning. Um, it, this whole movie starts off very pretentious wise. Uh, you have Bruce who's giving a meeting pitch to somebody uh, who is I think played by the director Charles yeah. Finch. Because he's credited as Evan Best. I don't remember anyone named Evan Best. Maybe it's on a placard or something. Uh, but there's such a small cast. There's like five people in it. He must have been the guy who was being pitched to. Um, but it, like it's it's so abrupt that like we kind of didn't even know that the movie started that way properly. It's, it's like your jump smash cut into him like mid-speech. Yeah, and... We... And then, like, after the speech is done and he gets rejected, then we go into credits, and yeah. then the pretentious Ibsen quote. And I don't know how many movies we've had so far that have, like, a... A pretentious a quote pretentious from quote some random author. White, white yeah. text on a pure black background so far, but it's more than five in 1991. That was a, that was a theme. That was a thing. Um, yeah, I was confused how it started, because it just immediately started with him talking and i was like i don't know confused by that because it didn't begin with we thought it was in one, of, one of the previews we should which we should probably stop and say there were oh, previews okay. on the yeah. vhs we watched of this uh it is it is streaming on plex but we watched the vhs copy um and since it's 1993 we got movies that won't be covered on this podcast at all the first was uh wallace sean and c thomas howell in a screwball comedy buddy picture. I've never I've, even heard of this No, movie. I never, not once have I heard of this. I'm assuming it's direct to video. It's a, also, it is a 1991 movie. Oh, is it really? When I looked it up, yeah. It's called Nickel and Dime. It's supposed to be like a list, so. Maybe we can't find it and it's too hard to find. I don't maybe. know. But it's. Wallace Shawn, who is... He's like an accountant? Accountant, yeah. But he has to be an accountant for this aloof dude. See Thomas Howell for some reason? I don't know. And he has to like babysit him or something? Like They have to be in the car going somewhere together. Yeah. And I didn't really get the whole concept of the plot. But it, it they made it seem as if... See, Thomas Howell is like this... Did you ever see My Blue Heaven? No. Ugh. Alright. It makes me think, like, C. Thomas Howell is like this Lothario type of dude, 
And poor Wallace Shawn is this, like, nerdy guy who all he does is crunch numbers or whatever. Yeah. And they there is a part in the the commercial or in the ad where it's like, you're 40 and you're still a virgin, so let's get you laid. And there's just, like, awkwardness with that. Yeah. It was weird. Uh, I, I don't really have much interest in, in seeing it. Me neither. <laughs> but it was interesting. I just to... never heard of this movie, and I thought it was weird. And then I... it It's kind of like a rip-off of My Blue Heaven, sort okay. of. But My Blue Heaven is... I used to watch that a lot. If I have seen it, I, I don't it's remember. It's Steve Martin bit. with Rick yeah. Moranis. Yeah, so I mean, that okay. seems like something I would have seen, but I really do not remember anything of it. Um... And then the second and, and final trailer was, or preview, was for uh, Gas Food Lodging, which we've briefly mentioned when we were talking about The Unborn, because Brooke Adams stars in that, but she does not appear very much in this trailer at all. It's mostly right. about the daughters, uh, played by Farisa Balk and Ioni Skye, um, and, you know, coming-of-age thing with her and her sister, with, like, some fantasy elements in there. It looks... It looked interesting. It looked better than Nickel and Dime, for right. sure, of the that's, two. That's a 1992 movie. Yeah. Yeah, but she filmed, like, all of these movies, like, back-to-back, back. Yeah. Like, I remember we were talking about the, uh... Yeah, when she was on... Johnny Carson the, appearance. Yeah, because she... I think she mentioned this movie. Yeah. Which it might not have had a title yet at that point. But... Those are the two trailers, so that was interesting. That was my first look at Gas Food Lodging which I had heard of, but, and then we get this jump cut into this pitch and we thought maybe it was another trailer for a different Well, I knew it was the movie because I knew it was Dylan McDermott, but I was just confused on how it began. Yeah, it was, it was off-putting and abrupt. Um, and a lot of these things in this movie are, in a sense, but... Yeah, I really didn't like his performance in the beginning because he's, you know, just like mumbling to himself. He's talking to himself and he's having all these amazing revelations like, oh, I should live in that mansion. And like, it's so unnatural. All of these interactions between every person with another person is incredibly unnatural. So (laughs) I don't know. It it was, it was dumb. And (laughs) the whole thing with like Stan, Stan is his boss, I guess. Right, because he's also a real estate agent. Which was weird to kind of have that thrown at you with, like, one small line of dialogue that I almost missed. And his boss, he doesn't... Dylan McDermott, Bruce, I should say, doesn't realize that this mansion that he's supposed to be selling is haunted right. yet. Well, not it's, even haunted, but it's or the not site haunted. of a, a it was murder. A, yeah, it was a murder site. Like, because his boss is like... like I, you're going you're gonna to get fired unless you can sell this mansion. Yeah, basically. he's kind of like, I'm going to give you, like, this shitty house that hasn't been sold in a really long time, but I'm not going to tell you the reason why it was it hasn't been sold in a while. But we see him living in the house, and I was like, oh, because, well... He, yeah, Bruce he was kicked. He gets evicted, but he's living in the house that he's trying to sell. And then he's renting out 
a room of the house. I mean, that house is technically belonging to, like, a bank or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, he's, so he's, like, squatting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's squatting. It, but, like, his he butt... he had that big revelation in the car where he's, like, talking to himself. He's like, what am I going to do for money? What am I going to do for money? Oh. I'll rent out a room. Where am I supposed to live? Oh, I can live in that mansion. I'm a genius. Bruce, you're a genius. Like, it's, like, it's that kind of bullshit. But, like, his, uh, his boss, the real estate boss, <laughs> is, like, doesn't follow up. No, he never comes back. It's that opening scene where he's like, hey, you should sell this mansion or else. There's no follow-up. Never. With... There's never a second scene with Stan where he's like, hey, what's the status? Because he's living there for months. He's yeah, clearly there for months. And, and he nothing. Just, and then he tells um, like you Eddie, see... who's Tom Sizemore... Well, Tom Sizemore appears at the house asking like if... the next day. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, asking if he can rent a room. And Bruce is like, no, I'm trying to sell it. Yada, yada, yada. Well, he's like, no, it's not a good time right now because he just got out of the shower or something. Can you come back tomorrow? Right. And then, like, he has the idea for a book. He's working on the book. And then clearly more than a day passes. And then just Eddie shows up again to rent the room invited it, by Bruce off screen yeah. so yeah. somehow they exchange information or something yeah it's because I was like how did he know the room was for rent for the second time around like yeah how, uh, did, how did they get in contact with each other because yeah, they yeah. just walked away yeah from each other I, whatever okay. like there's a lot that's dumb but and, I mean they could have easily had Stan come back to the house to check on things, discover the issue, and then maybe have Eddie kill him without Bruce knowing. Yeah, th- there was a lot of they things. Could've they could have done something like that to but make yeah, it a little more interesting. But yeah, his boss never comes back to follow up. It, but when the when he first, when Bruce first lives in this mansion, um, he, you see him washing the floors and stuff. Cause, yeah. Uh, and I've, Figured if you're washing the house, why didn't you see like all the blood stains and whatever the hell all over the house? You didn't get that far. He was doing that one circle for like 10 minutes. And, (laughs) but while he's cleaning that floor or that circle, he's coming up with ideas for a new book. God, that was bad. And, um. Like, I'm assuming that was supposed to be funny. Where he's like mumbling about like. Well, what about a killer robot who comes to life and heads up a movie studio? Yeah, he's and, coming up and with, And he like, hires Mickey Rourke to star in everything. Wouldn't that be a great idea? Like, I'm assuming it's supposed to be some weird self-referential thing or, I don't know, something Like something that joke. happened during that time? Like, some weird pop culture thing we don't know about? But, like, is that supposed to be funny? Because it's just, it's, the, it's literally sounds like the ramblings of a idiot. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, I got you off, I think. I don't even know what I was going to say anymore. Uh, well, okay, so then, like, the next day, or, yeah, the next day, because he has a couple that comes by. Yeah, this is after Eddie comes to ask for a room, even. Right. I don't know if it was the next day or just a couple days, but the next couple scenes, <laughs> um... A couple comes by because they're interested in the house. He thinks he's trying, like, they're interested in buying it. But it's a couple that's, like, really um, 
fascinated because they know it's a murder site because they're like, ooh, ah, look over there. Oh, that that's still there and shit like that. Uh-huh. And then Bruce is like, oh, so you're interested. And they're like, oh, we just wanted to look around because this is a house that was the site for these murders that happened like five years ago and he didn't know anything about and then once that is told to him he he like looks over a bunch of random boxes and he sees all the blood and like dried blood and whatever yeah he then he starts then he goes into like the basement or the attic or whatever it is I don't and sees which... like all this it all this stuff and then he's like okay i'm gonna write my book about these murders but then after he like circles around the room talking to himself for a whole bunch of you know well the for a long and time, then like, he what also am I gonna do what am i gonna do what am i gonna do oh i'm gonna write a book about this like yeah it's so dumb i really hated it i hated those scenes and um well th- another thing that bothered me was that he was walking around around the house and he's he's like going around the grounds he finds the necklace of like one of the children that was there that was killed i mean fast forward to near the end because the cops come by and they're like yeah we scoured this place but i was like but he found this fucking necklace in like 10 minutes how did you scour the place wouldn't they keep that as like evidence or some shit I, I can't expect logic in this movie. But, and then wouldn't, I don't know anything about crime scene cleaning up. Like, after a crime has happened, don't you want to clean up the crime scene stuff? Like, blood and whatever the fuck? Yeah, I don't know whose responsibility that would be in a private residence. But, I mean, the house has been sitting there for, like, five years. Right. Alright, well... <laughs> Um, yeah, so that he, and then he's like, okay, I'm going to write a story about this murder, but then that's when Eddie comes back again, and Bruce is like, yeah, I'll rent out a room for you here for like $350. And they sort of, (laughs) they sort of like... I don't know. There, there's like points where Bruce is like pissed off at him for no reason. Like you woke yeah, me like, up. <laughs> like when he made breakfast, where where yeah, Eddie dude. was making breakfast, and Bruce is like, "What the fuck? You're making all this noise." And I don't know. Yeah, don't be loud. In, don't be loud in the morning. Yeah. Like, well, um, yeah, I mean, he's not a likable character for multiple reasons. Yeah. yeah he's, he's antagonistic towards Eddie from the start. He's kind of yeah. creepy because of the way he just handles himself and the way he talks to himself. I don't understand. Once he learned that he was going to do this case, he has a bunch of like slides, picture slides, and yeah. all kinds of papers and professional-looking photographs of all the different signs. How did he get all this stuff? Like, I can understand I, like I newspaper went... articles and whatever from the library, yeah. but this is like police evidence level unless shit. he also got that from a library you know like microfiche and stuff like but you don't have like professional photo side printouts. slides right i that I they don't, don't keep know. you know investigation stuff like that they don't have like grisly pictures of murders 
Right. And all the, the cop police notes. Like, they don't show how he got it. He just happens to have it, and he has to read it all out loud extremely slowly. He's reading it to himself. He's reading it to himself, and then, of course, Eddie comes around and, and listens in and interrupts or whatever. Um, but, ugh. Like, honestly, like, the only good performance in this is Sharon Stone, and she's in it for, like, five minutes. Yeah, she plays, like, the typical, like, I think she was kind of, like, the same in He Said, She Said. Kind of. Where she kind of appears in that movie, and she does something, like, bitchy, and then leaves. (laughs) Like, this is kind of, like, the same... She's playing she's, like this... she's a hard ass exec. Yeah. But I mean it makes sense. Right. Asking him like what's the status of this book? And then he he lies to her. He lies and says that he knows who the killer is and he's confiding in the killer and getting all this information for this book. Meanwhile, yeah, for some reason she thinks that. I don't remember him actually saying that. I just but, remember her assuming yeah, that they, and he didn't correct her. Okay. Cause, yeah, they didn't... But the, they have this conversation where she's like, so you lied to me. You, you don't, you're you not getting your information from the right. source. that right. you, Whatever. Yeah, we're, we're pitching this as a true thing where you have actual insight into the killer. Right. But you don't. Um, and, and the whole thing is like he, he's not going to get his advance for six weeks and so since he doesn't have any money and he's squatting in this place that's why he's renting out the room is so he can have money the money which is really just going to be 350 bucks before book. he gets his advance right he's not going to get two months worth of yeah so I mean what the hell I don't know <laughs> anyway uh, yeah so then I mean Eddie finds out about Bruce writing this book about the murders because when Bruce is gone from the house for a day doing whatever, is that when he's at Sharon Stone's house for the day? Yeah, basically. I mean, she wants to check on the status of things, I guess, or like try to get it in his pants, and he's like walking around, like fiddling with her stereo and shit, and like just being really aloof and, and walking away every time she comes near and I, I just don't understand like what the character motivations are at any given point and honestly like at that point and I'm, I, I wrote down like at this point like the mystery so far is what is the actual mystery like we're halfway through this movie I'm like what's the suspense about because all of the suspense is coming from the music it's all coming from the tone of the picture and, like, the brooding performances saying, don't trust anybody. Mm-hmm. But, like, all we know is, like, Eddie's a skis and Dylan's a jackass. That's right. it. But then Eddie starts... But you starts... can kind of assume, because there's only two people in the cast, what's gonna happen? Mm-hmm. And then Eddie starts helping Bruce write this book. Like, he's just planting random ideas. Where Bruce is, like, questioning himself, like, how did the killer get in? There weren't any, like, broken windows or shit like that. And Eddie's like, well, maybe they left the door unlocked and he just walked on in. Right. Like, planting ideas. Even, like, knowing that, you know, Eddie was the killer. And, um, 
stuff like that. And then Bruce is like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like, the, he's cracking me up. Bruce is, like, so oblivious because, yeah, clearly Eddie is, like, giving the audience clues. But it's important for the movie to for Bruce to be dumb and also kind of uh, unnecessarily hostile towards Eddie, too. Because remember yeah. that, that one scene where Eddie's like, I baked you a cake. Oh, yeah. And he's like, my birthday's tomorrow. Like, no no thank you or anything. He's like, basically like, you idiot, my birthday's tomorrow. How do you not know this stranger that you met like three weeks ago's birthday? And how did you get it one day off? And he's like, really like, antagonistic and nasty towards Eddie for no reason. Right. Like, if I was Eddie, I would have just fucking killed him. If you're a killer, I don't know. Well, that's the whole thing. Like, so, okay. Like, yeah. The, okay. Like, so Eddie's... Then, I don't know. Whatever. You go ahead. <laughs> well, I don't know. Then we get to that one... Yeah. I mean, it's Bruce being, like, kind of shitty to Eddie, but then they bond whenever Bruce is... Like, he's using Eddie for these ideas. Kinda. And there's just one point that when we get to Eddie doing that weird ritual <laughs> on the bed for some reason... Well, he's, he's he's stalking his next family. Yeah. So he sees the family, cases them a little bit, and then he runs back and does that whole thing. So, like, he's... Like, he's getting ready. He's, he's getting he's excited. Getting super excited about it, yeah. And thinking about it. And then... Okay, and then throughout this entire movie, Eddie is always doing something. Like, he'll be reading or washing the car or doing something around the house, and he's always wearing headphones. Mm-hmm. And you see him, like, waving, like, as if he's listening to, like, Tchaikovsky or some shit. Yeah, I think and, he even hums classical music sometimes. Yeah. To give you the impression that that's... That he's listening, listening to classical music. Yeah. So, yeah, that's... Yeah, he comes home, he does that weird ritual thing where he ties himself to the bed and he's, like, orgasming at the thought of killing these people. But then he locks himself in the room, but he's not really in the room. He's probably out stalking that family now. And then Bruce comes to his room and, like, knocks on his door. And he's like, are you there? Are you there? Like, come out. I don't even know why he was asking Eddie to come out of the room. Like To, to either work on the, the, book the book or to go to his job, which was supposed to be the supermarket. Yeah. And, but then he was like, oh, you're sick? Let me call the supermarket for you to tell them that you are sick. Yeah. And I was like, how does he know? Why would he do, why would anyone who is like a stranger to someone else do that? You can't look for logic in this movie. It doesn't really But exist. then, I mean, he calls that store and they're like, yeah, there's no Eddie that works here. And then that's when he gets suspicious and he goes into Eddie's room and kind well, of looking around. The tape and, yeah, and he, he, find, he finds the headphones. He puts he puts it on, turns puts on play, and then it's these loud screaming and whatever. Yeah. And here's where things get really, really dumb for me. Because he goes... Bruce, when Eddie returns, Bruce goes to Eddie and immediately confronts him and says, you killed those people, didn't you? And then, like, Eddie does the stupid-ass slow-clap shit and is like, you got me. Yeah, Like, yeah. immediately confesses. 
and confronts and says, oh, this is going to be really good for both of us because I can help you with your book. I'm so glad you know this about me now. And, like, this is going to be good for me because whatever. Like, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) And then, like, almost immediately after, there's, like, this weird clown messenger at the door. That was so confusing. I was like, what is this clue? (laughs) I know. Like, it's not nearly as cool as in Clue. But I I thought that was so weird. clown opera singer, which is just Selena giving giving him a telegram with the advance money in it. Yeah, it was kind of like, here you fucking go. Here's your advance money. Congratulations, here's your money, which I don't know. They flashed on the screen. I think it was like a hundred something thousand or something like that. Oh, okay. I was trying really, I was trying really hard to find out how much it was, but okay. So he gets his money. Hopefully get a screenshot of it, but we'll see. Yeah, so he gets his money, but like, where's the conflict? Because like, at this point, like, Eddie, Bruce treats it as if Eddie is holding him hostage. And, like, Eddie's forcing him to do this book. To finish his book. And at some points, you know, Eddie is now the typewriter himself. Writing And doing all this stuff. Like, what is to stop Bruce from ever just calling the cops when Eddie's not around? Well, he said when Eddie finally reveals that he is the killer, um... I thought he was like, oh, I'm going to call the cops right now. And he's like, yeah, go ahead, but I'm not going to be around when yeah, they come Yeah, oh, they, they aren't going to catch me. I'm going to be gone. Yeah. Like, okay, cool. Then just call him and then he's going to be gone. Yeah. But And then he leave doesn't. the house. It's not your actual house. Yeah. Go stay with fucking Serena for a bit. I thought, okay, when I was younger, I thought him finding out about Eddie was way at the end of the movie. Oh. I didn't realize it was, like, midway. Because, uh, I think that... That's my... my A 13-year-old girl watching this. Like, my mind blew when I... When I, like, the screaming started when he put on the headphones. Like, I was into this, like, murder mystery or whatever the fuck as yeah. a 13-year-old. That's why when, like, when we, this was on the list, I was like, okay, I can't wait to watch this, because I remember being, like, freaked out. But now I'm not even freaked out at all, because I'm just laughing at it. Yeah, I think what's sad about it is, like, the whole build-up to it is all about the relationship between Bruce and Eddie, which I did not ever care about. And you don't have anything of the actual murder mystery being put together. That's why I was like, what is the actual mystery? Because we don't know what happened in the house. They don't even try to explain what happened in the house. He doesn't ever try to actually figure out what happened in the house while he's writing the book that we see. Mm-hmm. So, like, what is like what is the point? Mm-hmm. It was just a bunch of filler to me. Right. And it, I thought that reveal was at the very end. And then I thought Bruce was already finished with the book. Like, they were helping... Like, Eddie was helping Bruce with the book and then he realized oh the the killer right. was writing the story all along and right. then i thought i thought that's how the movie ended and then like eddie left to go on to his next victims sure that's how i thought like that's a better ending to me it is it is a better ending <laughs> like can we just go back to like my 13 year old brain and rewrite this movie yeah, but an- yeah another theme is like you coming up with better endings to these movies that's <laughs> happened more than five times so far in this podcast yeah, that's 
that's a better like oh shit like that's why and then that made me think yeah, it'd almost be like a usual suspects type of a thing yeah well that that's also happened. made me think of because then i started to think about all these other movies that i was watching around this time and that's when we were watching primal fear because that was i had the same reaction with primal fear <laughs> sure like but that's like that more understandable reveal. Well, yeah, because that was, like, at the end where you're, like... Right. And then, like, just, like, the reaction to it, you're, like, oh, shit, you're helping this person all along. Yeah. But, yeah, that's what I thought this ending was going to be. <laughs> but so, I was, like, disappointed when it happened, like, midway. But it, then, uh, like, it gets it goes to this other spot where there's, like, this... I don't understand like there's like this weird montage of like putting on a suit for some reason and then like Dylan McDermott's like batting around crumpled papers and well because he's got to finish the book because he got his advance and then like you know just like Sharon Stone is like breathing leave. down his neck to finish it just turn him in secretly and keep writing the book like Eddie makes it seem like it's impossible for you to finish this book unless I'm involved yeah and then he starts to go I don't like he starts to go freaking off the wall because then he's like, where are the bones? And that's when he starts like digging up the gardens. Well, because Eddie tells him where the bones are specifically. But Eddie says like, there. this is what happened. Yeah. And whatever. And then like the cops come and, and he's like, no, there's no bones. We've already dug yeah, this yeah. up and we've done farther than what we're doing right now. There's no bones. Like this is probably just some dude scamming you. Who are, yeah. are scamming us and like trying to waste our time and like they get the thrill of pretending to be the killer. Yeah. Which could have been a nice little twist as well. Yeah. But it wasn't the twist. It was just a thing that they hinted at as, as a possible twist. Um, and then there's like this big confrontation between Eddie and Bruce where Bruce is like, I'd rather just die. And like he put, and Eddie puts the knife to his throat and like nothing happens. They just like come to terms with it. And then. And then Eddie does this um, search or whatever. Because by this time, Eddie has left. Because he's going to go to the next house and kill these people. I guess because the cops were called at that point. Yeah, I don't know, and Eddie, like Eddie knew. Yeah, but Eddie like sends him a message through his uh, headphones. Like, he leaves them somewhere and then... Um, Bruce listens to the tape and Eddie's like, oh, it must be nice that your sister... Like, it makes it think as if he's going to go kill his sister. Uh-huh. And then... And it, it, oh, my God. It turns into this, like... I don't even know, puzzle to to, to solve. It's not... It's just, like, a race against time, I guess. I don't know. Like, it's it's this stupid thing where, like, he... he they have, like, this offhanded conversation earlier in the movie about the sister who lives in the desert. Yeah. And then, like, once Bruce gets the inkling that Eddie might be heading towards that to, like, punish him for doing whatever, he's like, Hell! And then he, like, runs out the door, basically, to leave in a and car to find his immediately sister. Drive. And then his car dies his in the middle of dies. the desert. And so he's running in the middle of nowhere where this house is because it's near nothing. And Eddie was there. Yeah. He was the, like, the sister and her husband are safe, but Eddie was there. Well, and this he, was like right after his birthday. And then the sister's like, oh yeah, a friend of yours came by and left you a present. And then he 
kind of like it's like Eddie, oh, let your me friend see. Eddie stopped by and left you a present. They specifically mentioned the name. And but was, then it's just like another tape and then he's like There's a tape inside of a Bible. Yeah. It cut out he cut out the Bible. So again, the religious stuff, stuff that yeah. isn't really a theme, but they try to make it a theme. Um and it's just him talking about how they would have made a great pair or something like that. I don't remember exactly what. Well, I think he's just kind of like Eddie's like this narcissist where he's like, you were writing a book about me and, you know, I'm helping you, but you're also helping me. Yeah. And then they just, sh- like, while while the tape is playing, they show current day Eddie walking up to the house that he was sculpting And then earlier. entering the house. And getting in the gate. Through the door. Yeah. Like, like how he said in the beginning. It's just... So he's on to his next kill. But I think the reason why he did that random chase to his sister is to divert any attention from Bruce calling the cops on him right then and there or something. I don't know. So like he's like, okay, let me have Bruce go to like Arizona or whatever to divert me from going to kill this family. I don't know. Which he didn't know about in the first place. So it's not like Bruce could have saved yeah, them. Yeah, Bruce didn't know that he Bruce was like... Bruce didn't know that was being cased at yeah, all. Yeah, Bruce didn't know that Eddie was on to the next family. Right. Until Eddie says, yeah, by the time whatever you hear this, I'm probably going to be doing some other shit. And then he, he gives his... um. Like, how he stalks, he's like, at first I get to know their routines and blah, blah, blah. I follow them for months and blah, 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 this and that. And I know everything and time everything. And by the time I know it all, I'm going to go in for the kill. Mm-hmm. Like, he's telling Bruce his uh, secrets. I don't know. <laughs> but they're not really secrets. I don't know. I don't know if that was just like to help him more with the book or what. But then it ends. And I thought that's why I got this movie confused with California. Because I thought there was like a resolution about his book. Right. And there's not. Well, I thought. Yeah. Like, okay, in the movie California, (laughs) there is a resolution about the book. Like they become like rich and they live on... A fucking nice house on the beach in California. And they made it. Whatever. I thought that's what the ending of this movie also was. Like, oh, he's published this really great book and he made it. But no. Uh Uh-uh. It just ends. It just ends. But at least it ended. (laughs) I don't know. I hates this movie. I did. I didn't like it. It was heavy-handed from from start to finish, and they try to throw these like metaphors at you or these moments of poignancy, which is just nowhere. It, like the the stupid like mini little hints at religion, or like talk trying to be deep when talking about like the hawk in the tree, and all these different little things and creepy baby doll. Just it is it's it's. It, it doesn't it doesn't mesh nothing like 
works for me. <laughs> like even like I don't know, even like the the title of the book. It's like oh, I have it, the perfect title, Diary of a Murderer. It's like come. That's on. like so generic. Yeah, and that's the problem. Like this entire movie is incredibly generic. I can I can see why I didn't get released in the box office. I guess. I don't know. I didn't check to see if this is on USA of all night, but this seems like one that could was. have been. I don't. It's it may be like a little bit too serious, highbrow, for yeah. that. But they do occasionally do like legit movies, so I don't know. But I mean, like compared to like Perfect Bride, that was. Mm-hmm. I think I liked Perfect Bride more. Awards, nothing. Box office, nothing that I could find. Cast and crew is pretty minimal. You got, um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, it's Yolande Turner, Y-O-L-A-N-D-E Turner. Um, she is the mom of the director, Charles Finch. Uh, they co-wrote a couple different things uh, together. Um, so she wrote Two to Tango and Bad Girls with him. And then as an actress, she got her start doing a bunch of different guest roles and, and you know, like minor TV performances for a long time. And she did have uh, some starring roles in movies like Five Miles to Midnight, Girl with Green Eyes, and Some Like It Sexy. Charles Finch, the director, writer, and Evan Best was also the director and writer of Priceless Beauty and Never Ever, and also the writer of Bad Girls, like we said, with his mom. And then also The Dentist, which is probably the, the one that I knew of most besides this one. Dylan McDermott is Bruce Simmons is a Golden Globe winner and two-time nominee for The Practice, Emmy-nominated for the practice as well as Hollywood, which I don't think I've heard of, but it's like a miniseries, I guess. Uh, Saturn nominated for American Horror Story, Murder House. Um, he's also been in things like Steel Magnolias, Destiny Turns on the Blues, Three to Tango, uh, the TV series Dark Blue, and FBI Most Wanted. And he has one other 1991 movie, Into the Badlands. Tom Sizemore, we've seen a couple different times already in Harley Davidson and the Marble Man, and also Point Break, he has a small role there. He's also in Guilty by Suspicion and Flight of the Intruder. Uh, He's Golden Globe nominated for Witness Protection. Saturn nominated for Heart and Souls. I forgot he was in that one. (laughs) I love that movie. I I like that movie too, but I forgot he was one of the the people in it. That's why, like, when I I watched this movie and then, like, Heart and... Like, because, I mean, he's creepy in everything. A lot. Yeah, in 99% of everything except Heart and Souls. (laughs) <laughs> well, also, maybe not so much Saving Private Ryan, which he's also in. Uh, it's like the war stuff maybe a little bit less creepy, but he is also in The Relic, uh, Black Hawk Down, China Beach, the TV series, Heat, and then also creepy in Bringing Out the Dead. Uh, Sharon Stone, we've seen once before and He Said, She Said. She's also in the 1991 movies Scissors, Year of the Gun, and Diary of a Hitman. Uh, she's been in things like Police Academy 4, Above the Law, Total Recall, Basic Instinct, Last Action Hero, Casino, and Diabolique. I don't, I'm not going over her you know, award credits because we talked about that last time. Um, and then uh, two more quick people there. We got Ron Carabastus as Stan Reeb in his like five-second performance. He's also been in things like Flashdance and Cold Steel and also in a couple other 1991 movies, Rich Girl, 29th Street, and Down the Water. And then Mary Warnov comes around one more time for mm-hmm. us as, one, as the woman tourist. Uh, we've seen her, of course, in Motorama and as the principal in Rock and Roll High School Forever. Um, music was done by Hans Zimmer and Mark Mancina. Um, probably the best part of the movie, I guess, but yeah, it was overbearing. Yeah, I was so surprised to see that Hans Zimmer did 
the score for this for like a lower known movie. Yeah, they must have had higher expectations for this one, and then it just didn't quite pan out. But yeah. Mark Mancina is accomplished in his own right. He's he's paired with Hans Zimmer and, and uh, won get Grammys for The Lion King and Tarzan, also nominated for Moana, and has done um, the music for movies like Moana, uh, you know, obviously, uh, Speed, Monkey Trouble, Bad Boys, oh Twister, Con Air, Outer Limits, Criminal Minds, so a whole bunch, he, the, the theme song for Criminal Minds. So, you know, he's done like a lot of action stuff. That's pretty much all I got. This is a short cast, thankfully. On to true crime and pop culture we go. Okay, so this movie was released on November 13th, 1991, which was a Wednesday. And I'm going to talk about the history of that house, that he, the mansion that he stayed in, because I didn't know this until I started looking up stuff about this movie but this house is an LA historical cultural monument as of 1984 the house was built for Charles E. Toberman it was known as the C.E. Toberman estate but it is now known as Villa Las Colinas and Charles E. Toberman was a real estate developer. He is known as being Mr. Hollywood and the father of Hollywood because he is the developer for a lot of other Hollywood landmarks like the Hollywood Bowl, Grauman's Chinese Theater, the Roosevelt Hotel, and Grauman's Egyptian Theater. This is the Spanish colonial revival which is an estate on two acres. It has 19 rooms. There's a main house, and then there's also a guest house, a garage, and then a separate pool house, which I don't even know if we've seen all of, all of the land on there. No. But, I mean, it's a huge estate, and it was issue it was on the first issue of architectural digest where on the cover it had a young betty davis in the front of the door and at that time when charles toberman lived there he was neighbors with betty davis like she lived across the street hmm. and in 1980 the estate was sold for one million dollars which is surprising because of how palatial it is i <laughs> don't and it was then placed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1983 and then became part of the LA Historic Cultural Monument in 1984. And then it was used a lot for like parties and events. And I think it kind of currently is. When I looked up the address, it said temporary closed. I don't know if that was because of like COVID or what. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the house is still there. And I thought this was interesting because the house was also used as a filming location for the show Entourage. It was Vince, Vinny Chase's house in the first two seasons of Entourage. Never watched Entourage. <laughs> uh, I, I just thought that was funny because, yeah, I used to watch Entourage. And I was like, oh, okay, that house. But, I mean, it looks... It, 
in Entourage, it's like extremely updated. Sure. Yeah. This this he looks very dilapidated. Yeah. And worn down. I don't know how much of that was set dressing. Okay, and then moving on to TV because this is a Wednesday date and we rarely have something like that. There on ABC was Dinosaurs, Doogie Hauser, but then there was a TV movie that may or may not be on our list called Backfield in Motion. Does yes. that sound okay? That's a, um, an American comedy that stars Roseanne Barr and Tom Arnold. Mm hmm. And it also has, it has a lot of other people. His calling camp, she is in Clue. Yeah. She's the, talking uh, about Clue. Yep. yeah, we talk, we're talking about Clue. And then like Conchata Pharrell's in it, Johnny Galecki. I don't know if that's because of the whole Roseanne tie-in. Probably. And, um, it is a movie about... The story is Roseanne plays a widowed real estate agent who lives with her teenage son, Johnny Galecki, and they start a mother and son high school football team. When Galecki joins the junior varsity team, Roseanne organizes a mother's versus son's football game. I did not watch it. I I can tell you that much. But yeah, I th- and then and then I think Tom Arnold is the coach. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't. He must be a coach. Yeah, and teams. I didn't read too much about it because I was like, oh, all right. But it had, it had fifteen million viewers that night, which is a little higher than some of the other TV movies we've talked about. All right, so we'll move on to rankings and ratings then. Where on your one to five star scale are you going to put Where Sleeping Dogs Lie? This is going to be controversial for you, I guess. Uh, I'm giving this a two. Oh, that's not controversial at all. Well, I... I <laughs> like, when you said that, I'm like, oh, God, are you going four? No, no, I just, like, you... I know you hate it so much, and I feel like you're going to give it a one. <laughs> I'm giving it a one, yeah, on my zero to four star scale. I'm just I'm going just to a it one. A <laughs> so, um, yeah, I... I don't know. I mean, I'm open-minded. I like... But it, it, from the very start, it just kind of lost me with the shittiness of the performance sorry dylan but not good uh and then it didn't get better so any movies worth watching once would you watch this again for the third time in your case um i kind of yeah i would (laughs) for some reason (laughs) like i even though we're like shitting on it it's still like it's creepy to me even though it's like bad there must be some nostalgia creepiness to you. I didn't find it creepy at all. I, I think because when I first saw it, it's such a young... It's like, I don't even know how to explain it. It's like, I don't know, whatever. It is a nostalgia thing. But yeah, I'll watch it. I'll watch it on like another 20 years. Because then I'll be like, oh, and this is how it ends. <laughs> and be disappointed again. Or something like I'll probably have forgotten all about it in 20 years. So sure, I'll watch it with you in 20 years. Otherwise, no, I don't want to. Uh, I mean, it's honestly, like, it's something that's kind of bad. It's almost bad enough to make fun of, but it's not quite there. 
so I'd rather watch something I can like actively make fun of. Uh, I'd rather watch something like Perfect Bride or I'd watch something like Sweet Poison or something like that again instead. Or just go into all of the other 90s thrillers that we've been talking about that exist, you know. Just... But the, are there like other 90s thrillers that are... Well, okay, forget it. I mean, there's like Jade and stuff like that. I I, I thought that was fun. Yeah, Jade's fun. That's that's it. Yeah, that's a different atmosphere than this. Okay, one. and then you should probably watch Color of Night because then that's that's another movie I watched around the same time. So there you go. There's options. That's the whole point. There's other options. Like, I don't want to go back to this one. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It, this movie just made it reminded me so much of other movies that I watched during, and then another movie that I saw that is like lesser known is this movie called Silent Fall. That I kind of want to rewatch again because I remember also being blown away by the ending. But now I'm like, what if it's just like a shitty ending? <laughs> right. Well, we have other options. I'm gonna leave this one where it is. Uh, but if you out there do want to watch Where Sleeping Dogs Lie, as of this recording in July 2023, it's available on Plex, VHS, or DVD. As always, check your local listings. As for us, you can listen to us on all of your major podcasting platforms. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. You can email us at 1991movierewind at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, YouTube. Just search 1991movierewind or go to 1991movierewind.com for the full list of movies, along with show notes, and more. Next week, we're continuing and finishing up our thriller slash whatever conspiracy month with uh, Cybernator. That's available on Tubi. Plex, VHS, or DVD, we will see you then.